Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Susanna Ferguson. Today we'll be chatting with Professor Khalid Fahmi, a historian of Ottoman Egypt at the American University in Cairo, and this year a Carnegie Centennial Fellow at Columbia University. He is the author of All the Pasha's Men, Mehmet Ali and the Making of Modern Egypt, as well as various collections and essays on the history of law, medicine, and the body in Ottoman Egypt. So Khalid has agreed to join us here today in New York City um, to talk about his new book, which is tentatively titled A Sense of History, Law and Medicine in Modern Egypt, and uh, is hopefully forthcoming from the University of California Press in 2015. So Khalid, we're really happy to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here myself. So today we'll, we're going to talk um, about a chapter of the new book, which describes the functioning of the Egyptian penal system in the second half of the 19th century. And I hope that we'll learn a little bit about how the system of law and justice functioned in Ottoman Egypt, um, and also talk a little bit about the broader conceptual and historiographical uh, implications of what your research suggests. Yes. And to start off, I think uh, it's fair to say, based on the little reading that I've done, that the legal landscape of 19th century Egypt is a little bit complicated. Um, so first, there's this question of sovereignty, right? So Egypt um, is nominally under Ottoman rule, but governance has sort of been in the hands of the viceroys or khedives uh, since Muhammad Ali negotiated this kind of hereditary dynastic um, viceroyship in 1841. So the first question that arises for me um, is sort of which of the legal and criminal issues you discuss are matters for the sultan? in Istanbul, and which are matters for the Khedive in Cairo, and how is that worked out? Um, and what does this tell us about the sort of relationship between uh, Cairo and Istanbul at this moment? Well, the, the, the negotiation, actually, or the, the, uh, the viceroys, Mehmed Ali, managed to carve out an independent legal realm way before the negotiation happened in 1841, the settlement of this big crisis. Uh, it is true that after this settlement, uh, Egypt has a slightly new, different status uh, that has been diplomatically negotiated with the help of the Europeans. And from that time onwards, Egypt uh, is a hereditary province and... Um, and has a special status within the Ottoman Empire. But be, way before then, Mehmed Ali was actually doing something very interesting. He was passing laws. Now, no previous Ottoman governor uh, was doing this. Throughout the 300-odd years prior to Mehmed Ali becoming governor in 1805, no, no previous governor had been actually passing laws. Uh, they were managing affairs uh, on in, in the, on behalf of the Ottoman sultan uh, but no governor was uh, was doing what Mehmed Ali starting to do from the late 1820s now this is interesting because from 1805 to 1829 which is the first criminal court that Mehmed Ali passes is a long long period uh, and by 1829 Mehmed Ali is already uh, had already broken many, many records as a governor of Ottoman Egypt. He is by far the longest serving. He is by far the strongest. Uh, he had already accomplished very significant social and economic reforms in Egypt. But in 1829, he starts passing criminal laws. 1830, he passes what is called Ashi Qanun, uh, which, again, had not been done before. So previously, Qanun had been coming from the Ottoman center in Istanbul. Yes, and, and as we know, the Qanun Nameh's uh, that the Ottoman sultans were passing very often were uh, distributed to different uh, provinces throughout the, uh, the empire. And sometimes um, different Qanun Nameh's uh, were enacted by the sultan for the governance of particular provinces. And Egypt was one such province. There is a Qanun Nameh for Egypt that was passed by Sultan Selim I immediately after the conquest. 
So Mehmet Ali is sort of an innovator in that he begins to pass his own criminal law and also establishes a criminal court um, in Egypt to hear these cases. Well, not really court. Uh, I mean, he, he, he's tampering with, with this system, but initially he, he's passing these laws uh, in 1829, um, mostly to try and rein in the members of his elite. Uh, the the new governors of the provinces, the new heads of administration. There is a beginning of an administration that needs to be governed. Mm. So that is that is when he's doing it. And throughout the 30s, he's tampering uh, with mechanisms of how to actually implement these laws. So it's easy to pass a law, but you know what? Do you actually how do you actually implement it? Right. And it seems that one of the things that happens um, and sort of speeds up in the later part of the 19th century is this kind of proliferation of mechanisms. You have village courts and provincial courts and then a high court in Cairo um, to sort of organize uh, the implementation of these these panun, part of which are coming from Istanbul and part of which are coming from the Khedive. Yes, but it's very important to, to say that they're actually not called courts. The word mahkama is still reserved for the traditional Sharia court. So, so these are called majlis. Uh, so they're councils and they're not manned by qadis. They're manned by administrators with no legal or fiqhi training and very often they are, in fact, provincial governors themselves. And because one of their functions is to maintain, so to speak, law and order, so they are, in fact, appointed to these uh, councils to um, implement these laws and adjudicate certain disputes, either disputes uh, of um, malpractice of power, you know, when these provincial governors... And, and various other officials of the state abuse their power or, in fact, criminal cases that happen to have occurred in these provinces. And, and the, guide, the, 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 the guidelines with which these, these councils go about doing their business are these laws that Mehmed Ali had passed. So um, you sort of characterize this system that's operating in Egypt under the Khedives as a dual system in which the Sharia courts, staffed by Qadis, who have you know, legal training in the Islamic tradition, um, are joined by these new courts, which you call siyasa councils, which are interested in the application of qanun. Um, so maybe you could just sort of sketch out for us how these two systems of courts or councils work together, and, and what's the, the change over time um, from the early part of the 19th century to the later part of the 19th century in the division of labor between these two court systems? Let's concentrate on criminal law, because that's the one thing I worked on most, and it's where I think it is most developed. And again, it, it, it takes a very crystallized form uh, in the late 1840s, the beginning of the 1850s. It had started, as I tried to say, in the 1830s, but it mushrooms in the 1850s. Uh, the Qadi courts are there, they have their jurisdiction, they have their personnel, they have their training. We know them very well from the huge amount of literature that has been produced using their records on Egypt as well as other parts of the Ottoman Empire. What we see differently in Egypt from the 1850s are these siyasa, again, not courts, siyasa majlises. And um, the best way to explain the two-track system is to give a hypothetical example, a case, a criminal case, let's say a murder case. Uh, so there's a murder case, and of course Sharia is very vocal about homicide, so um, let's say a body is found, and there is a body of a man, and his uh, father takes the body to the Qadi, and he claims, and he brings charges in a Sharia fiqhi way against, let's say, the local strongman, uh, the Umda, and he says uh, the village head, the Umda, has killed my son with intent. That's the formulaic statement that needs to be made in the Qadi court for this to be, for the legal action to start uh, as a homicide case. Then the Qadi says, uh, as we know, okay, what's your bayina? What's your proof? And the bayina is either a confession by the defendant or an eyewitness account. And there are very stringent conditions for the kind of uh, account of the 
you know, who is to testify, who is to be admitted as a witness, and the formulaic statements that need to be uttered for the Qadi to accept the testimony of the eyewitness who had witnessed the... Uh, and and the, 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 the problem, and, the, and the, I want to stress that there is a problem, is that um, it's very difficult to prove homicide cases. It's not only for under Sharia. So it's not only the, the famous fornication, zina, where you have to have four male witnesses of the actual act of copulation, but in uh, all the hudud punishments, the fiqh had established such a high barrier of proof that effectively it is really difficult, if not impossible. And Rud Peters, uh, Rudolf Peters, who had studied the records of Sharia courts, came up with an amazing statistic which is that only 5% of homicide cases end up with uh, a had punishment, that is a, a capital punishment, under Sharia law. Again, to go back to our case. So the father goes, he cannot provide evidence, the Qadi tells him, case is dropped, we cannot proceed. Uh, so, so he has to find an alternative. Or, which is more interesting, the father convicts, manages to provide evidence, but then decides not to go for qasas, capital punishment, but to accept blood money. Or reconciliation is or another thing you mentioned. That's another option. Yeah. Sulh. So he can drop the charges after proving them. He says, okay. And that, of course, very often happens when there is, as this case is, um, a huge disparity of power. So the, this peasant can be intimidated by the umda. And this intimidation can lead either him not being capable to find witnesses who would be strong enough or powerful enough or brave enough to step forward and testify against the Omda, or the father eventually, because of pressure, accepts blood money, or he's intimidated otherwise and drops the charges after proving them. So as far as Sharia is concerned, that is how the case is resolved. The, the father either accepts money or sulh, um, or cannot prove the case. Now, for a state, for a society that is concerned with something as serious as homicide, when it finds that this mechanism results in only 5% of cases being punished by a deterrent punishment, uh, is, is a serious problem. And what we see in 19th century Egypt is... Uh, that the state provides this alternative mechanism whereby this same man can go to this council and with the same case. But in, 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 in this second track, this alternative track, the Siesa track, everything is different. So the main difference is the means of establishing proof and also the punishment. So if we concentrate on proof, here it is not the oral verbal act of either the defendant in confession or a witness in his testimony, but circumstantial evidence. And what is most fascinating in 19th century Egypt is, as far as circumstantial evidence is concerned, is forensic medicine. So now we have at least two generations of Egyptian doctors who have been trained in the Qasr al-Aini hospital founded in 1827, who are effectively and primarily appointed as coroners in uh, police stations, they are then drawn upon and dispatched to the scene of crime, and they conduct a thorough investigation, post-mortem examination first, and when they see something suspicious, then they send the body for autopsy. And the reports of either the external post-mortem examination or the actual uh, autopsy are fascinating. They're very detailed, they're very precise, and they come up with a conclusion of whether or not this case, this murder, um, this death is natural death or not. So this is a whole new kind of proof that's being activated and sort of brought to bear on these on these crimes under the CSA system. Yes. So one of the things that you point out that I find curious is that these new mechanisms of proof uh, in CSA courts forensic evidence, police investigation, um, don't often seek to contradict Sharia rulings or you know, seek to supersede or preempt them in any way. 
No, I mean, the, this whole thing is not thought of to be an encroachment on, uh, on the Qadi. The Qadi, uh, in his court, conducts his business as has been done for centuries, literally. Uh, but then we have this other mechanism, and the main thing is that this other mechanism is cognizant of the fact that the Qadi is doing his business, and they have to wait for the Qadi judgment. If the Qadi um, rules with Qasas in these very, very rare cases, 5%, then, then that has to be executed. That punishment has to be carried through. But if it results in something else, then the Siasa investigations run their course, uh, the police in, uh, interrogations and the circumstantial evidence uh, and all kinds of, of bits and pieces, and then they are put together and presented to the council. The council deliberates the evidence. Eventually, they eventually that is in the 1860s, 1870s, they have the right to bring in the defendant um, and witnesses and hear them. But prior to that, it's all based on written reports. The investigation takes place in the police stations rather than in the council but regardless eventually the council members sit and they have these documents in front of them one of them is the report of the police and the other is the report of the hospital and they see things and they have the law they don't have fiqh they have the law and then they say upon deliberation of the case uh, in the majlis we see and then they say a b c it's the reasoning, the haithiyat, which we still use in Egyptian law. Haithu anna, haithu anna, haithu anna. Given, 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 the givens. So they state the givens, and then they state the law, and then they issue the verdict. And the verdict usually is never capital punishment. Capital punishment can only be done by a qisas, that is a, 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 a sharia verdict, but the issue basically is a prison sentence. So this seems to me, um, at least the way that you describe it, uh, like a system that's different in almost every way. Um, the conditions of proof are different. The training and the background of the judges is different. And the kinds of proof in particular that can be applied to these cases are quite different. Um, so I want to go back to this question of timing. And I'm curious, you know, what is it that's happening in the 1850s uh, and afterwards under which circumstances the state uh, is sort of interested in a new way in these questions of law and order. Um, is this about a, a sort of growth in the magnitude of state power? Um, or is this a really fundamental shift in the very nature of the state? Well, there are two things happening here in, in, in your question. There, there are two things that have to be teased out. There is the, 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 the genealogy of Siesa. And then there is what happens to Siesa in this particular 19th century context. So one of the things that I am saying is that what appears to be that we are witnessing here is something fundamentally new. But in fact, it isn't. Siesa is a very ancient practice. I actually claim that Siesa had always existed right from the very beginning of Islamic legal history. And that from the very beginning of, of, of Qada, of the Qada Shar'i, there was this parallel legal system uh, for, for, for this reason we mentioned uh, that, that the fiqh, as it has evolved from the 2nd, 3rd century of Islam, uh, for the reasons we now know, uh, with, reg with regards to criminal law in particular, had established these very precise uh, uh, reasonings and mechanisms to try and find as incontrovertible uh, truth as possible between the contested act, in this case the murder of this young man, and what happens in court. And the way fiqh developed was through privileging the oral acts, the verbal acts of the, uh, uh, the defendant and the eyewitnesses. Um, but that leaves the state. Now, the state has always been concerned, okay, the fuqaha have their own concerns about what proof is and what truth is, but the state has its own concerns. The raison d'etat is not something that was suddenly discovered in the 19th century, something that is ancient, even before Islam, obviously. Um, so, from the very beginning, there is a parallel legal system. It used to be named different names. The most famous is the Mazalim, the Mazalim courts are, 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 an are an example of the siyasa. 
that we see in the 19th century. It's a bit different because the Mazanim courts are, are courts in which um, uh, uh, the agents of the state are being tried. Uh, so uh, someone who embezzles taxes, someone who abuses his power. Yes. So I want to ask, given that the 19th century is often portrayed as a, as a period of quite substantial transformation, right, in the military, in the economy, in land use, in public health, um, what is it that, that changes over the course of the 19th century in this system of Siesa um, that you argue has sort of existed in some form or another uh, since the early days of Islam? Well, what, one of the things we already mentioned, which is forensic medicine, um, so so that's a new kind of, of circumstantial evidence that is now available to the Siesa councils that used they didn't exist before. The fact that Siesa councils, the Mazalim, let's say, ruled by circumstantial evidence is known. Um, but this kind of circumstantial evidence that is based on this new knowledge, this new ex- medical expertise, that is what is new. And also that's written, that circulates, I mean, so much around the production and reading and potentially archiving of written texts. Exactly. Um, as opposed to witness, right, which is so dependent on, you know, physical presence. Yeah. Um, the other, uh, just another example of, circum- of, 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 the, of, the, of what is new about the 19th century circumstantial evidence of uh, that, that the Siesa Council accepts is, um, again, all kinds of written uh, documents like um, the criminal records. Now there is a state, and the state has accounts, has records of past uh, convictions and the recidivists, and they have them in police stations. And when... And the law makes these distinctions. These new qanuns say in a case of a repeat offender, uh, second time the punishment will be X, third time the punishment will be Y. Well, how do we know first, second, and third offense? Well, the state has this kind of evidence. So the state is keeping records on the population. The state is is keeping records on all kinds of, of movements and activities and identities of the population. There are conscription records, there are census records, there are uh, vaccination records, there are police accounts, uh, and it's exactly these kinds of textual devices that are now increasingly being used by the CSA councils in the adjudication of these criminal cases. So again, what is what? Uh, so we have three components here of, of what we're seeing. We have the Qadi courts, then we have the Siesa councils, and then we have the state, the new bureaucratized, rational state of the 19th century. It's this modern state um, that, that comes into being. And what we see in the records that I'm studying is the interplay of these three components. You know, we've sort of teased out what's particular about the 19th century. Um, I'm curious what's, what's particular about the case of Egypt. The Ottoman legal system is undergoing similar kinds of changes in the 19th century, right? Um, and some scholars have, have noted that a sort of similar dual legal system existed between Nizamiye courts and Sharia courts um, in other Ottoman provinces. So I, I'm curious how the Egyptian system sort of fits into this, con- the, this sort of context of imperial reform in the 19th century of Tanzimat, um, and how it's sort of similar or different from what's happening uh, across the empire. One thing is that it's a, obviously it's a smaller k- scale. Uh, Egypt is one province, whereas the empire, part of the difficulty that it has is that it's a complex uh, set of, of, of provinces. So one of the features of this new system is uniformity. And you can establish some kind of uniformity in one province. It's very difficult to establish a, a uniformity across across an empire. Across an empire, many which is by definition forms of governance, right? Yeah. So that's one difference. The second is that um, what Mehmed Ali manages to do in by by the 1820s already with the army, uh, which is the trigger of so many of what follows. Uh, is something that the Ottomans are struggling to do. And interestingly, they're looking at what is happening to Egypt to try and figure out uh, what, you know, how, how to emulate them. 
so with the army, we have the beginning of conscription, and conscription triggers uh, many things, ultimately leading to the census, so an attempt to account for the population, where the people are, mm. who mm. is where, what kind of status uh, they are in. So that ultimately results in a very, very thorough census. Understanding of who the population is. Yes. Right. But I'm curious, I'm curious, so, I mean, Egypt, of course, is smaller and more homogenous than the Ottoman Empire at large, but of course there are also, you know, there are minorities within Egypt, um, which, how do the, for example, the Copts interact with these Siesa courts? No, the, 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 there's the, no difference. There's no difference at mm-hmm. all, because, because, again, one of the main things that, the, that, that happens in the Siesa courts is that uh, the, the the there is a um, the, 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 there is the I, I don't want to say the idea because there's no idea of equality or equivalence among people but there is an actual practice of equality and equivalence among litigants which of course is not the case in in Sharia in the, the Qadi has to establish the fundamental difference between men and women the fundamental difference between Muslims and non-Muslims. In the Siesa councils, these are moot points. So this is another question that I wanted to pose to you, actually. Um, you know, sort of maybe starting from some of the work that Judith Tucker has done on um, legal, sort of the legal system in Ottoman, greater Syria in the 17th and 18th centuries, where her work sort of suggests that um, in many cases, the Sharia courts were better for female claimants um, in many cases in practice than the Qanun courts. So I'm wondering, you know, as we see this kind of what you described as a mushrooming of Siesa courts uh, or councils, I, we don't have a good English translation of Mejlis um, in the late 19th century, sort of who wins and who loses? I mean, is there a sense that, um, for example, for women, it's better to uh, have a case sort of end with the Sharia court than go to the Siasa court or, no, or I not mean, really? The, the, the thing about Siasa is that uh, by, by definition, this is public law. So it's about, uh, it's about taxation, it's about uh, state officials' abuse of their power, and it's about crime. So the uh, inheritance, uh, uh, marriage, divorce, child custody kinds of cases, what eventually came to be known as personal status cases, are never handled by the uh, Siesa councils from the start. That is not what they deal with. So the, the, a woman who wants to have a divorce, uh, that is not where she goes. But so, for example, um, a female death is treated in the Siesa courts in the same way as, as the death of a man. Yes, and, uh, and, and, and a woman trying to establish her uh, ownership of a piece of land because these are also land disputes are ha- handled there uh, this, the, the the council does not take into consideration the gender of the litigant interesting but I, I want to come back because there's an important thing that I think is different between Egypt the question you raised earlier about what is different in, in addition to the scale and the, uh, between Egypt and the Ottoman Empire between Egypt and the Ottoman Empire there's something else that I I'm, I'm, um, I'm pondering, and I, I, um, I've been thinking about uh, about it, which is, it, it has to do with with Europe. It has to do with science, and it has to do with um, um, with the relative ease with which the Egyptians managed to engage with modern medicine, modern. Um, your uh, modern uh, military tactics without the question of identity coming into the picture without the whole question of uh, lineage identity the uh, provenance of whatever it is that is being borrowed becoming an issue this is a i think one of the most fascinating finds i have stumbled across mm. so the egyptians are able to to interact with western science for example um, without worrying about it being a Western import, yeah, which it, is different from what's happening at the Ottoman yeah. center. So it's, it, it is actually not posed as Western to start with. It's not that 
Mehmed Ali manages to convince the reactionary ulama because he has bought them and to say that that uh, this is good for, for, for Egypt or this is good for you and that's why they become complicit with his project. That It's just not an issue. So when Mehmed Ali appoints, let's say, European, not only advisors but officers, his second in command in the army, uh, Suleiman Pasha, of course, now he, I mean, he's Colonel Sev, he converts to Islam, but many others do not convert. And they, I mean, Club B, the head of the, the medical establishment, is Finch, mm. and he's, uh, he's, he's a Christian, and he's identified as such, and that doesn't ca- uh, pose a problem. Autopsy, the opening up of the body, uh, causes problems, but not based on religion. European origin. It's, yeah. it's not because this is European, and this is, um, and we have our own religious traditions, and this heathen uh, person is coming, and let's it's uh, resist to him. Actually, that way of understanding what the problem is is what Club B thinks. He's the one who's propagating the idea that I, with my modern science, am trying to combat the religious superstitions of this backward people. But the backward people, whose records I read, don't do not, see it this do way. Not, do not see it this way. Interesting. And uh, the doctors whose accounts I read, uh, who conduct these autopsies that are then presented to the Siesa councils, they are actually, all of them, have been trained in Al-Azhar first. They are graduates of Al-Azhar, and then they join the medical school, and after joining the medical school, they're sent to France, they learn French, and then they come back and translate this science. And when they translate it, this is the most fascinating thing, they don't translate it as European science. And they are, when they write their accounts of what they are doing, they're not saying we're trying to catch up. And let alone saying, oh, we have to combat the superstition and the backwardness of our people. Or of Islam. Right? Or of Islam. So this is so interesting because I think it brings us to another thing that you really kind of do so well in all of your work, which is to make both historical and historiographical interventions, right? So it seems to me that um, one of the things you suggest is that the historiography of legal reform in Egypt has kind of taken the narrative of people like Clobet, right? Um, as, you know, the coming of Europe and modernity and, uh, you know, Christian Europe or secular Europe to the backward people of Egypt has brought all this change, right? And what you're saying is that actually, you know, when you read the records of the people who were doing the translation of science um, and who themselves were the product of this, this time and place, that's not at all what you see. So I'm curious, you know, what you see as your historiographical intervention um, in the sort of way that the story of legal reform in Egypt or the Ottoman Empire is told. Well, one is exactly what you said. I mean, it's it, it becomes then historiographically interesting to pose the question of when exactly was it uh, framed in this way, uh, that is, secular Europe or secularism. When was it uh, posed as a question of secular secularism? When was it posed as a question of a confrontation between Islam and modernity? When was it posed as a question of a religion that needs to be contained? My records do not show, which go all the way up to the early 1880s, do not show that this was the question. At that time, this was not the question. It became the question, I mean, Islam became the question in the 1890s and later on. And I think it is very, very connected to colonialism in the following sense, in the following particular sense. It's not only coming um, with guns or coming with a new set of laws, Europeans, but it is this very elaborate edifice of the state that the Egyptians have managed to build over the past 50 years, being snatched from them. And by the way, when I say Egyptians, I don't mean Egyptians as such. I mean the Egyptians and the Europeans and the Ottomans working within this administration. When when they saw this administration being usurped by them, uh, from them by the British, and most specifically when they saw that the power of the purse is no longer in their hands, then I think this is when the crisis sets in, and that is when... The, that elite has a deep shock and it takes them, in my reckoning, about 10-15 years 
to start and articulate a way of making sense of it, and that is, and they do this by the end of the century, and at that moment, it becomes a question of Islam. About Islam, right. But so even if the elite themselves or the administrators who worked in this kind of, I don't know if we want to call it a hybrid system, but this sort of dual legal system under the Khadivs did not themselves see the question of secularism as thinkable or important. Um, I mean, one of the things that Talal Assad has argued is that, you know, it's this separation between a sphere of life um, that has to do with morality in the private sphere, right, which you um, noted earlier as what comes to be personal status law, and the production of um, a legal arena, right, under CSA, which has to do with public order um, and sort of the the needs of the state to be able to adjudicate certain crimes, that this is actually the framework on which a sort of secular mindset or the question of secularism is posed. So I'm curious if you see yourself sort of, you know, do you see that that differentiation between the moral and the private and the public um, and questions of public order happening in these uh, CSA records? And sort of if so or if not, what does that have to do with this narrative of secularization? Uh, no, I, I mean, in my period, I don't. I, I think this applies again to the later period. Um, and it's interesting that in, 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 in Assad's um, famous uh, expose of this idea, and rightly so, um, rightly famous in the seventh chapter of his Formations of the Secular, when he deals with the history of Egyptian legal reform in the 19th century, when he makes this argument of the creation of the private realm um, and the separation of morality from law argument, it's actually based on texts that were <clears throat> pedagogical texts, in a sense, that are written way towards the end of the century, in the 1890s. Precisely the moment that I'm describing is qualitatively different and that marks a sharp break from what comes earlier. So the period I'm working earlier, the period I'm working on, the earlier period, let's say from the 1820s up to the 1880s, the period in which this legal system that Talal uh, Assad incidentally does not really address at all, the, the, the modalities there are different. There, the question is not about the separation of morality from law. And it is not also one about uh, creation of a private sphere uh, with the family. I think it is rather something different. It is the creation of a new sense, I won't say of, uh, of identity. I don't mean a Burkhartian notion of an identity with a subjective interiority. That is not what I'm saying. But referring back to the devices I mentioned earlier of these census records, of these vaccination records, of these tax records and the, the priors registers, uh, the police stations, uh, the, the, the new kind of, of medical expertise that can um, study not only epidemics, but isolate and individuate disease, mm. that creates a new uh, mechanism of dealing with human bodies and with selves inhabiting these bodies. Mm. And people uh, clung to, I mean, not clung because they saw uh, the benefit of this, but these are devices that could no longer be avoided. So a woman People or a man, use them. People use them to make all kinds of claims. And, and that is a market shift from earlier times and a market shift from the Qadi courts and also, and, and this continues, obviously. This right. is what a modern state now means. So that um, in contrast to a way in which people were embedded in a social context, be it a, a family or a neighborhood, a guild, uh, a, a village, uh, a street, now people are embedded in a very different uh, context, which is a state context. It's your number in the census right, record. Right, which can document the particularities of individual lives. Yes, yeah. and, I, I, and this is the kind of, um, of, of transformation that I'm studying that I, ha I think 
has a far deeper bearing on uh, the nature of the law uh, than the creation of private sphere mm. that uh, Assad is, ta- mm. is, is talking about because it is not about the family. It's actually about the individual. The danger, of course, in my saying so, is is that I may be misunderstood to speak about a, an, an individual with a subjectivity. I'm not talking about internal subjectivities at all. I'm actually talking about very external uh, mechanisms right. of the state dealing with that presume individual bodies who can be adjudicated and and, tracked. and controlled tra- tracked controlled monitored right. um, and so this question of knowing who for example is a recidivist right is a very i mean that's a very good example of the kind of change you're to describing. try to identify where who who this conscript is so right. these um these passports they're actually called taskarat mur and i've seen some of them it's it's fascinating of course this is now you know, it's what we wh- what we have in ID cards, but even before photographs, let alone mm. uh, DNAs and fingerprints, w- we see the beginnings of them. They 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 state the name, the name of the father, the village, um, the name of the uh, vi- uh, the village head who will be the guarantor of this person, and then we have physical descriptions. And occasionally we have a number, and that number is the number of this person stated in the census record. Right. So this is, I mean, and these documents are what would be used to establish identity in court, right? So this is a shift from instead of having two present embodied witnesses who can say, yes, this person is who they say they are, suddenly you're in the presence of this ID card, which has the specific information, um, which is sort of serves the same purpose, but in a very different way and produces perhaps a very different notion of the human. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Interesting. So I want to ask you, I want to sort of end with um, a, a question, a, a sort of broader question that, that maybe can sort of bring us up to um, contemporary conversations, which is that um, this book seems to sort of join your previous work on some of the major institutions in modern Egypt, right? You've worked on the military, um, you've worked on the system of public health, the question of medicine. And uh, at a talk that I had the pleasure of attending a few weeks ago, you mentioned that one of the sort of major struggles for intellectuals after the revolution of January 2011 um, was sort of placing 2011 in Egyptian history, right? And thinking about the temporality of what people are fighting against. And you suggested, I think very provocatively, that some of the deep paternalistic and undemocratic features of the modern, the contemporary Egyptian state um, might in fact date back to the time of Muhammad Ali and this sort of mid to late 19th century moment. And you sort of called for, or to my mind, sort of mentioned as one of the things that Egypt really needed, uh, a toolkit. We call the toolkit to tackle the deep state, um, some of these sort of embedded undemocratic features. So I'm curious, um, you know, if this discussion of the law and your work on this period um, and your sort of skepticism or, or, or nuancing of these secularization and modernization teleologies that are so prominent in legal reform history um, speaks to ongoing concerns about what's happening in Egypt now or um, the deep structures which make change so difficult. Yeah, I think I think this kind of uh, these sources that I've been working on now for more than 10 years, 15 years, in fact, um, they, they allow me to to begin to think of an alternative narrative that one can use to challenge the two dominant narratives of Egyptian history that we have, the Islamist one and the nationalist one. So I think it's obvious how what I'm presenting is a challenge to the the, um, the Islamist one because the traditional explanation of the uh, Islamists about, let's say, modern Egyptian law is that we had Sharia and this Sharia got subverted, sidetracked, uh, thrown out of the window by a group of um, westernized uh, elite members, political and legal elite members, who were so bedazzled by the West that they were, were ready to give up their heritage and to replace Sharia by modern positive law. And what I'm presenting is is, is an alternative narrative uh, that is different from this on many levels, but even on empirical level, that, 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 that the story is infinitely more complex than that. 
and that this is a very simplistic way of, of understanding it. And it's very unfair to many people who worked in, 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 in dealing with a very complex uh, bureaucratic and legal uh, situation. And indeed that there was no golden age of pure Sharia law. Exactly. That's right. the other thing that when people just assume that there was a, a, a period uh, prior to so-called westernization, secularization, in which uh, the, the law and morality were embedded together. That is just not how things were done. This is a very romanticized and, and I dare say simplistic way of understanding how Sharia was actually practiced. And uh, Ottoman historians mm. have fleshed mm. over now more than 30 years a very, very complex picture of using Sharia court records of how Sharia was Im Im implemented. And what I'm adding in addition to the Sharia court records is the Siesa Council uh, right. records and and that is a very complex picture now as far as the nationalist uh, narrative which is equally dominant in Egypt um, uh, I think uh, I think what I'm presenting is equally challenging to it simply put Egypt of course is considered to be the central uh, state uh, in the region um, uh, if you don't want to go as far as the pharaohs and to say Egypt is the first nation state in the world, then we're speaking about 200 years of state building. And very often, our neighbors in the region, you know, in, in the Arab world, they um, envy us for what we have. We have a strong state, we have an army, and, we, and of course, in Egypt now, this is the, the language that is being posited. The, 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 the regime of Sisi is basically saying, thank God, you have to thank God for the fact that you have an army. Had we not have an army, if you Egyptians didn't have us, army generals, we would have ended up like Syria and Iraq. That's the, the catch line that everybody's repeating. And I think what I'm asking is um, two things. First, or three things. This army, this state, this huge power that is, first of all, how was it actually constructed? Mm. Um, in details, we, we need to know the nitty-gritty details of what the state means. And part of that story is this sort of deepening and sort of adding complexity to this legal system. Yes. Right. The, the legal system, the public hygiene system. Right, the as with many other systems. Yes. Yeah. And secondly is uh, who paid the price? Mm. Uh, yes, it's an amazing achievement, but who paid the price for it mm. and thirdly which is the most difficult question um, because it, it entails imagination uh, is to uh, encourage fellow Egyptians to contemplate uh, how else it could have been mm. could, could have happened so yes these are very incredible achievements mm. for Egypt to have an army that did this you know under Mehmed Ali or a census that was uh, right. so thorough in 1848 and so on and all of the all of the institutions that makes that made Egypt what it is now the question is could it have been otherwise otherwise and in fact by going back to this this period which is as you say before the the sort of rupture of colonialism and the imposition of you know new kinds of laws new kinds of of, of power of the purse um, you sort of lead us to a moment perhaps when it was otherwise in many ways well not really actually i also want to ask this that question about that period itself mm. even before the rupture of colonialism look you know colonialism is bad colonialism is i mean we don't need to go there i mean maybe we do but we've been there i i, I personally think i don't really need to say that colonialism is bad so having done that the question is before colonialism when in you know, the system that I'm describing, was there something else? Was there something missing? Mm. Was there, could it have been, like, so I'm asking the question, for example, these amazing doctors who were trained and acquired, and they don't have this problem, as I said earlier, that, that later generations had about, or oh, is this modern science ours, or is it imposed on us? Is it compatible with our heritage, or isn't? They didn't have these questions. But, they had another problem, which is very significant. They were not allowed to carry the title doctor. Mm. They were not allowed to 
uh, organize themselves in an independent profession. Mm. They didn't have their own societies. Uh, they worked as state officials. They acquired their salaries the, uh, from the state. Of course, they were educated by the state. They were sent to Europe and France mm. by the state. They came back and became employees of the state. They actually even had military ranks. All of them, including the women doctors, had military ranks. The question is, what impact did this have mm. on the profession of medicine as uh, you know, w w uh, as it had developed in uh, in 19th century Egypt. The same can be said about engineers. So wondering about the specificities of how these professions took shape and these sort of central um, mechanisms within the governing structure, you're also sort of opening us up to the question of of what could have been otherwise, right, of contingency. Yes, and and... And and I think I, I and I have to be clear here. I I I personally, after studying this period so closely, um, I see in it the the seeds of the problems we are mm. uh, we we are witnessing now. So yes, there is a powerful army. Mm. It is true, and yes, Egypt has not fallen apart the way Syria is sadly now, or Libya, or or, or Iraq. That is that is true because of the power of the central state right. in Egypt and its institutions. The question I'm asking is, are these institutions probably too powerful? Right. Um, are they not answerable enough to the people that they are ostensibly serving? I think what we are witnessing now in Egypt is uh, a very uh, alarming phenomenon mm. of robust institutions that have withstood the danger of the revolution. Right, and which are perhaps less answerable than yes. before. So we have a yeah. judiciary that does not really uphold the law. It's a judiciary in which the judges clearly and blatantly say we are here to serve the state, not to protect the citizen. We have an army that uh, humiliates uh, and crushes mm. its conscripts. We have a police that tortures. So it's institutions that uphold the state but at the expense of citizens. And I think we in Egypt, that my reading of the revolution is that at the core of the revolution, in my reading of it, is an attempt by Egyptians to ask this question. Mm. Right. The answers to which may go back to, um, you know, the period that, that you look at, which, you know, seems yes. seems yes. so so long ago, but in many ways we still live sort of in its shadow. Very much so. Yeah. Well, I want to say, um, you know, I, I want to say thank you for being willing to come on the podcast today. It's been a great pleasure to My have pleasure. you. No, it's a um, and I think, you know, you're, you're really careful historical work on the law in this, um, as you point out, relatively understudied period of medieval rule in Egypt. Um, is of interest not only to historians of Egypt and to legal historians, but to anybody who's interested in structures of governance and relations of power, um, whether in the Ottoman Empire or elsewhere, right, in this question of institutions and to whom they are answerable, um, under what conditions. And certainly it seems to me we all live in the shadow, um, not only of the law, but of some of these teleological narratives about westernization, secularization, modernization, um, that you take up. So I, I, I see your work is really opening up for us a way um, to ask questions about state building, about institutions, and about people's lives outside of the, the sort of restrictive terms that these narratives offer. So for those who want to find out more, um, you can keep your eyes peeled for the new book, uh, tentatively titled A Sense of History, Law and Medicine in Modern Egypt by our guest Khaled Fahmi, um, forthcoming 2015 we hope, uh, from the University of California Press. Um, and we'll also put a bibliography uh, up on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, um, where you're welcome to leave comments and questions. So that's all for this episode. And until next time, take care.